So I think that signaling from our sector is absolutely important in playing a role. But I also think there's a really substantial part of the market, many of our clients who are making this recognition themselves that this is value, not values. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, I'm joined by Cara Mangone, who's Managing Director and Global Head of Climate Strategy at Goldman Sachs. Cara has been a large part of Goldman Sachs sustainability commitments, first as Chief Operating Officer of Goldman Sachs Sustainable Finance Group, and now as Global Head of Climate Strategy. The topic of sustainable finance has emerged as a key driver in the energy transition, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with Cara as we discuss her efforts at Goldman Sachs and get to know her a little better. Cara, thanks very much for joining me today, and let's start by having you tell us a little about yourself and give us an overview of your current role at Goldman Sachs. Thank you, John. I'm a big fan of the podcast and really thrilled to be with you here today. So I lead climate strategy at the firm. It's a really dynamic role. It cuts across a few different areas. The first is how we manage our business, so our operations, business practices. The second is the work that we do with clients, so advisory work, financing. I'll talk more about that. And then the third really extends outside the four walls of Goldman Sachs, which is how do we really address kind of the big thorny issues around climate change where we can actually have a substantial impact in the firm in addressing a more resilient future. So every day looks a little bit different. It could be collaborating with colleagues on our approach to climate risk management, integrating that into our business practices. It could be advising clients on climate considerations and how they think about those and integrating those into their business strategy. And it could be working with really important partners, nonprofits, folks in the public sector to leverage our capabilities and expertise to advance global ambitions on climate. And I think one of the things that is really cool about my role and is also really humbling is there is so much climate expertise at Goldman Sachs that often surprises people. And so, so much about what I'm able to do is actually really pull those threads together so that the whole of what we bring as a firm is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. I I think You might be the first person I've talked to at a company as substantial as Goldman Sachs that has their hand in virtually every piece of climate-related activity at their company. There's often often individual leads for those sectors that report up to someone who's not as focused on it. So while every day is different for you, it sounds like every day is pretty interesting. So really glad you could be with us here today. So sustainable finance at a high level, give us a framework for sustainable finance. What does it mean at Goldman Sachs? What's all included in sustainable finance from your point of view? So it's a great question because it's not always entirely clear what it means for a financial institution to focus on sustainability and sustainable finance. So maybe I'll start by just taking a step back, which I think is really important in setting the stage, which is 
what is sort of our, our purpose and mission as an institution? And that and our CEO, David Solomon, has been really clear about, about this. This is really around advancing sustainable economic growth and financial opportunity. That's really kind of core, sits at the center of everything that we do. And that's for our clients. And it's for broader stakeholders in society. And it's sort of the ripple effects that come from that. And I think what that tells you is that grounding is very, very core to, to sustainability. I mean, that sort of philosophy really means that actually for us to deliver on that mission, sustainability really needs to sit at the core of, of what we do each and every day. The manifestation of that sort of philosophy and commitment has taken the form of a $750 billion commitment to finance, invest, and advise in sustainable finance by 2030. And that commitment cuts across two broad themes. This is going to, I think, be a common theme throughout our conversation today, which for us, sustainability is not just about climate. It's not just about inclusivity. It's really about both. These sort of dual pillars of things like clean energy, sustainable food and agriculture under climate transition, things like financial inclusion, healthcare, community investment under inclusive growth. Those dual pillars are really of equal importance to our work on sustainability. And our CEO, David Solomon, put out an op-ed when he made this commitment, it was the end of 2019. And one of the things I think was really notable in that was that he really called this the, for us, the intersection of what is a commercial imperative and also an opportunity. What that really means is that sustainability is really representative for us as an organization and for many of our clients of risks and opportunities for markets, for economies, The idea that, and I'll give you a couple of examples, the idea that renewables now are much more economically, and this comes up in a lot of the conversations you have on the podcast, much more economically viable now than they once were. We have declines in battery costs, making electric vehicles much more cost competitive. Estimates are that by 2040, about half of new passenger vehicle sales will be electric. Pretty significant change relative to many years ago. We know climate is a very tangible sort of physical and transition risk for a lot of companies now that needs to be managed in portfolio decisions. And I would say anecdotally, sustainability is just one of those topics that comes up most frequently in C-suites and in boardrooms. So I think that is really the sort of foundation of all of this is that it's really core to our work because it's core to our mission as an organization. And one of the things that I would just say is also really notable, and this was in a very important part of David Solomon's op-ed as well when we came out with this commitment is this idea that for us, sustainable finance is not just about working with the companies that fall into these themes. This is actually about working with all of our clients for which sustainability represents a potential risk or a potential opportunity or a way to really evolve business strategy over time. So this is actually working with companies, asset managers, asset owners at all different points of their journey as they further integrate sustainability considerations into their business strategy and performance. Interesting. So at the start of your response to the question, you referenced how it's different things to different people. It's certainly different things to different companies. So it's not a project. It's not a division. It's not a thing at Goldman Sachs. It's really all pervasive throughout everything that you do, which is interesting. And there's almost this arms race around commitments. You were at 750 billion and someone says, well, we'll go 850 and ours is a trillion. It's the topic has exploded and virtually every major financial institution is making major 
commitments along these lines. Why, beyond Goldman Sachs, why do you think there's all this activity in the financial community around sustainable finance? So it's really been a confluence of events, I would say. You hit the nail on the head. There's absolutely been a flurry of activity over the past couple of months. And obviously, I can speak closest to the Goldman Sachs strategy. You know, this is really where I've sort of grown up working on sustainability. But I know many of these themes are are very common for our competitors as well and lots of other financial institutions. Two things I would point to for us and how we've really seen this acceleration. One is we have a very long history in climate, actually, and really acknowledging the detrimental impacts. And so we were one of the first banks in 2005 to really acknowledge the realities of climate. And we put out an environmental policy framework that really outlined the ways that we think as an institution we can deliver on sort of the risks that are represented in opportunities. We've had aggressive operational impact goals for some time. We've been carbon neutral across our operations since 2015. As an example, we've we've recently upped that commitment, which I know we'll talk about later. And I think that experience of being really proactive on climate and being in a place where we need to manage it as a corporate has actually taught us to be in a really sort of interesting, constructive place to work collaboratively with other stakeholders who really care about this and to work and advise our clients who are increasingly seeing the importance and relevance of climate and sustainability broadly. So I think that's sort of the first thing that I think all of us as financial institutions have really kind of gone through that experience ourselves as corporates. And that, I think, makes us very well positioned. The, the second is really who our clients are. And this is you know, most specific to Goldman Sachs, but our clients are corporates. Ambitious corporate commitments on climate have tripled since 2019, you know, net zero carbon neutrality commitments. And that's, that's really incredible pace of change. Asset managers, asset owners, also a very prominent bucket of clients for the firm, have seen record levels of flows into ESG equities over the course of last year. So we ended the year upwards of $170 billion of flows, and the activity has come with sustained performance, where we've actually in recent quarters seen the vast majority of passive ESG funds have actually outperformed their non-ESG fund counterparts. So we've seen you know incredible amount of activity in the asset manager, asset owner space, and individuals where individuals under the age of 35 are twice as likely to sell shares in unsustainable or unethical companies relative to to previous generations. So I think what that really tells you is that in some ways, this is, though values plays a component, in many ways, this is more about value than values for a lot of market participants right now. And so I think that's part of why you've seen this tremendous amount of acceleration by the financial sector and commitments is to actually acknowledge that our clients want and need advice, and then they need capital to actually deliver on broad you know, decarbonization transition goals. And our sector is really going to play a really significant constructive role in that. So I think it, again, back to the sort of David Solomon op-ed, the way he really put it, I think is this is an, op- this is an imperative and it's an opportunity. And I think that's that recognition is what you have seen across the financial sector. Some of this leaning in, definitely happen. One of the interesting things is a lot of this leaning in has happened prior to a change in administration, right? A lot of what we've seen from the private sector. So our commitment was in 2019. Last year, we did almost two times what we thought we could do in a year, $156 billion in sustainable finance activity. And so our expectation is that in this current administration, 
with clear signals you know, that they're prioritizing climate and they see a very important role for the private sector to play, that that's likely to facilitate additional enabling factors, which will create kind of more acceleration and momentum. And there's lots of things we've already seen from the administration on this front. You spoke recently with Keith Martin about the 45Q tax credits that are currently on the table for carbon capture. It's things like that. We know that the SEC is looking very closely at climate, mandatory climate-related corporate disclosure. So I think all of those sort of factors are, are likely to drive even further acceleration and focus. Yeah, fascinating. Boy, that, that was such a rich <laughs> response. I mean, there was a heck of a lot there. Although one soundbite that I wrote down that I think I'm going to keep and attribute to you, it's more about value than values. It's good business. As you reference passive ESGs that are kind of outperforming the broader market, and it, it truly is an imperative. With that being the case, I, I think at the most recent Davos summit, there was reference to the fact that this global push in commitments to net zero emissions, and it is a global push, it's going to require $50 trillion in investment, right, for this transition to really take place. What's your take on that estimate? Is it on target? Is it low? Is it high? Like how how big is big with this global opportunity? So look, this is such a fundamental question that's going to be really important around transition. There's certainly a range in estimates that I've come across. I mean, one of the projects that I had the opportunity to work on at Goldman Sachs was working with the Global Financial Markets Association at the end of last year on a climate finance report that looked at sort of enabling factors and capital required. And, and that project put the estimate at even larger, closer to 100 and 150 trillion over the course of the next 30 years. Look, I think either way, the first impression is certainly just, wow. I mean, that's an enormous amount of capital that's going to be required to deliver on kind of broad decarbonization, climate transition goals globally. So I think that's sort of my first impression And I think it demonstrates that although there's actually been a lot of progress, I mean, a lot of the kind of statistics that we just talked about and kind of capital flows we just talked about, where the private sector's doubled down, there's still so much work to do, is the reality. So I think that's the first takeaway. I think the thing I I would look a little bit closer at is what the makeup of the challenge really is. And I think two things I would call out. One is sort of what are, what's the dollar of capital that can be spent today versus in the future? And per that EA, about half of the technology that's ultimately going to be needed in terms of where those investments are going to go is, is not yet available at sort of scale for commercial production, right? Not really yet commercially viable. And so that actually underscores the importance of enabling factors and driving a lot of these capital flows That could be in the form of, you know, sort of guaranteed procurement, but things that are really going to kind of spur demand and really get technologies off the ground. One example we've seen firsthand at the firm is a company called Northvolt, which is a Sweden-based supplier of sustainable lithium iron battery cells used for electric vehicles. And this is an investment that we made through our merchant bank. And what we what we help them to do is to structure procurement commitments on a scale of about 13 billion. We we help to bring in partners. Volkswagen, BMW. And that sort of commitment of $13 billion of purchase orders allowed them to drive down battery costs and really spur growth. 
And obviously that's kind of one example of a private sector model, but I think that that's just an example of what can happen in kind of broad public-private collaborations to really help drive down the costs in some of those areas that are going to be so important. The second is when you look at that kind of big number, I think the second big takeaway is where does that capital need to go? And about half, around 55%, is going to need to be invested in Asia. Oh. You know, per this Global Financial Markets Association climate finance report we, we just worked on. So a lot around emerging markets, a lot particularly in Asia. And this is an area that we've been really focused on. We just recently launched a partnership with Bloomberg, actually focused on this very topic. So how do we, how can we enable kind of the facilitation of more private capital into that region to help accelerate the transition away from coal to more renewable sources of energy? And as our first initiative under that, we're going to be partnering with the Asian Development Bank. Bloomberg, you know, and ourselves to launch an innovation fund that's actually going to look at piloting different innovative structures that will help in that transition. Look, I think what that tells you is there's really, it's going to require a little bit of everything really to actually deliver on that capital that's required to undergo transition. It's going to take kind of public policy factors that are going to need to to really be put in place. It's going to take a private sector response and it's going to take an individual response as well. And we're kind of going to need to have be full speed ahead on all three of those (laughs) to really give ourselves the best shot of actually delivering on that. Yeah. Well, that's very, very interesting. Uh, So 50 trillion is maybe at the low end of a range that could go as high as three times that. And in talking about that topic, Kara, you've added some additional color and dimension to the scope of what Goldman Sachs is doing to kind of participate in that. Really interested to hear about this fund in Asia that's actually going to help develop and fund pilot projects. I was not aware of that. And in that context, you're actually helping fuel and accelerate the transition beyond simply providing financing. So that's really interesting to to hear, which which kind of leads to what I want to reference next, and that is you've talked a lot about how the financial community is supporting this tsunami of sustainability commitments. There's another portion of that that you just touched on where I see the financial community's focus on sustainability and climate risk at actually being a strong force that is helping to drive corporates to make sustainability commitments. It wasn't I mean, it was as recently as two to three years ago where the CFO in a company was the obstacle, it was the roadblock to a sustainability plan. Today, we're hearing anecdotally about how an energy manager or a sustainability manager will reach out to me and the tides have really turned. They'll say, hey, John, CFO just came down after a quarterly earnings call and we've really got to ramp up what we're doing in sustainability. I now have to have a proposal on their desk in two weeks. What can you, you know, what information do you have for us? So being able to access capital markets and the need to have a strong sustainability program in place is actually one of the drivers to the tsunami. So I'm, I'm curious for your take on how, how much of a role do you think the financial community is playing in stimulating this accelerating flow of corporate sustainability commitments? I mean, it's such a good sort of chicken and egg question to try to sort out. I mean, look, I think 
our CEO being very public and putting a really significant, when we put out our target at the end of 2019, I mean, biggest target, you know, on the street, broadest target on the street around sustainable finance. I mean, it was very clear what his thesis was around this. And I think undoubtedly our clients clearly read that message and perceived that. And, you know, there are many inbounds, you know, that he got, that our team got, that absolutely drove a lot of activity. So I think that signaling from our sector is is absolutely important in playing a role. But I also think there's a really substantial part of the market, you know, many of our clients who are making this recognition themselves that, you know, this is value, not values. You know, this is an opportunity to provide investor diversification, sustainable debt, on average, prices, you know, about five basis points tighter than traditional debt issuance, right? And so I think we talked about the performance, you know, of ESG funds relative to non-ESG funds. So I think I think that acknowledgement is is absolutely happening from many of our clients. And in many ways, you know, in our first year of having this really public commitment around it, and I should say, we have had a long-standing commitment to sustainable finance, but I think what the $750 billion commitment did was it really put a stake in the ground. You know, it was absolutely a year of kind of hard acceleration of our efforts. And to give you an anecdote, what I remember when we were getting ready to launch and we sat down with one of our executives and he said to me and my colleague, John Goldstein, the conversation was, the strategy around this really needs to be, how do you guys build this in a scalable way? Because if not, this is going to be every single banker, every single you know, advisor to clients is going to want to call your team and say, can you come and meet with a CEO or can you come and meet with you know, the CIO? Because they're really going to sense the opportunity. We really view this as being important strategic. He could not have been more correct. And that very much informed the way we sort of operationalize this around the firm was that this was really an effort around how do we actually integrate this expertise? And like I said at the beginning, a lot of this expertise actually exists around the firm. Some of this was, you know, has been this practice of pulling the threads together. But I would say this has been, he could not have been more right. We've been absolutely overwhelmed with sort of the level of interest. Both corporates, investors want to put this at the forefront of what they're doing. And actually, in year one, we did over a thousand client meetings on this topic. A thousand client meetings. Over a in thousand year one. client meetings. Wow. CEO meetings, CFO meetings, treasury, head of IR. I mean, it's just really so, like you said at the beginning, it's so integrated across organizations now that there's really a wide variety of conversations that we're having on this. So I would say we were absolutely overwhelmed by the level of interest and continue to be. I think. Some of the things that have surprised us a little bit is also just the nature of the interactions with clients. So the two things I would point to is, one is on the advisory side. We've had a longstanding sort of green bond financing business, and that was something that we've always been very active in. The advisory part of this journey has been super interesting. I think for a lot of corporates, they really recognize that this is important, but it's actually can be really confusing and disorienting discipline. (laughs) And I know this comes up in a lot of the other guests you have on the podcast of how you actually operationalize it and how do you kind of sort through it. And I'm sorry to throw out some of these acronyms, but a lot of the corporate listeners will get this, the GRI or the SASB or WEF or kind of, you know, the ESG disclosure frame, which one do you do? Why do you do it? Do all the metrics, do you do some of them, right? So 
often what we advise clients on is just like take the alphabet soup out of it. Take the, if it doesn't make sense to you, then that's not really the right way to think about it because it can be actually very overwhelming. Instead, treat sustainability and sustainable finance the way you would any other financial consideration. Like does climate for your organization, what are the ways in which climate shows up as a financial or reputational risk? How is your supply chain at risk? Can you reduce costs by operating at a higher level of energy efficiency? Like those are the types of things that we really encourage is just kind of the brass tacks of don't overcomplicate it, make it really fundamental. So I think that's one. I think the second thing that's really surprised us has been the broader capabilities that we've been able to build out as a firm. And I really give my colleagues around the firm a lot of credit for what we've done in year one. And I'll plug our sustainability report, which we just released a couple of weeks ago. But I mean, really an incredible section, like 20 or 30 pages, just all about the capabilities. If you ever have a question about what sustainable finance looks like for for a financial institution, I mean, that gives you such an incredible flavor for it. And this is really, a lot of this has come from this massive demand for ESG insights. So one of the things we talk about is how we've put ESG integrated into Marquee, which is our centralized cross-asset platform. And this is everything from, you know, clients asking us for ESG commentary, ESG fund flow analytics, like very sophisticated information that they want now. So I think that's been the second sort of surprise has just been the level of sophistication of capabilities that are being evolved, which is really a collaboration between what we think is important, but what our clients, you know, tell us they need. And so I think that's really been some of the things that have been most remarkable. I didn't realize advisory was such a big part of this for you, but given the scope of your journey, it would stand to reason that you've learned a lot that you can now share share with others. It's funny how you referenced how confusing it is for people because to this day, I'm shocked at how many companies make a net zero commitment and honestly don't know how they're going to get there. So it's fascinating. It creates lots of opportunity and those are bold commitments that are very meaningful. You've given us a couple of nibbles about the journey at Goldman Sachs and the history of sustainable finance of Goldman Sachs. I'd like to maybe shift gears and talk a little more about sustainable finance at your company. How did Goldman Sachs get started in it? You're obviously well along the way. What, what's the journey been like at the company to emerge where you are today as as a leader in the area. Thanks, John. So as you said, we absolutely have a long history in this. So, I mean, we were, and I would say long history in both climate and inclusive growth, just to kind of reference back to, to the way I framed up our commitment, which are those dual pillars, which have always been really important to the firm. On the, the climate side, that kind of initial acknowledgement in 2005 around the detrimental impacts of climate you know, at the time, there were not a lot of institutions talking about that. So I mm-hmm. think that really was the grounding for us on all this and the development of our environmental policy framework. What came several years later was our inaugural sort of first green financing target, our extensive operational commitments that we've had. So we've been carbon neutral across our operations and business travel since 2015, a lot of extensive operational commitments that have followed. And then on the inclusive growth side, a really long history as well. So, I mean, we founded our urban investment group in 2001, which drives a lot of our community investment activity, a very long history of economic empowerment with a particular focus on underrepresented communities. We launched our 10,000 women 
program in 2008 and our 10,000 small businesses program several years later, which have really just been, we've been sort of overwhelmed with the amount of impact just through those signature programs. And I think the way that we've really evolved from there is these kind of really started as priorities for the firm. I think what we've seen now is that opportunity side as well. These have always sort of been an imperative, but now more and more, this is really around the opportunity. And this is an acknowledgement that there's this incredible sort of multiplier effect that we can play by having this experience and kind of capabilities as an institution and being able to leverage that in our work with clients and in the broader ecosystem. Yeah, well, that senior level, that senior C-suite commitment to think of this as the opportunity to create value, but also have a multiplier effect to be thinking in terms of making sure you've got something that's big and scalable, really conveys a perspective on senior leadership that is really impressive. So you've got this extensive ESG plan in place today. What role does sustainable finance play in, in that ESG plan? So I mentioned at the start of the session, John, of sort of the way we really grounded all of this, right, which is our purpose, our mission as a company. This kind of could not be a greater sort of manifestation of what that looks like, of how we're delivering on that commitment to advance sustainable economic growth and financial opportunity. And maybe just to give you a little bit more detail on kind of what it looks like and and how it plays out day to day. So within our commitment, we've identified these two pillars, climate transition and inclusive growth of equal importance. Within climate transition, we actually do very clearly identify the themes that fall into those two broad buckets. And I will say one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we often get from clients is, how do I make sure that I'm not perceived as greenwashing, right? How how can I be really clear around what sustainability and sustainable finance means to me? And this was something that was extremely important to our management team. Like, let's be really clear with the market. When we say sustainable finance, what does that mean? And so within climate transition, you know, there's five themes and includes things like sustainable transport, sustainable food and agriculture, clean energy, and then includes inclusive growth, includes things like community investment, financial inclusion, healthcare and education. And then sort of within that framework, the question really becomes, how do we deliver on that as an organization? Sort of what are the tools that we have? It really is kind of three core things. The first is how we work with our clients. So this is the business that we do every day. I gave you a couple of the highlights throughout the conversation, but this is really a holistic, how does ESG show up as an issuer, an operator, an investor, an employer? So this is really the full capabilities that we can provide to clients. As you just said, it's not just about financing, it's strategic M&A, it's supply chain management, it's how do you integrate ESG into kind of 401k or pension consideration. So it's a really broad sort of suite of offerings. And we've seen an incredible amount of momentum in this. I mentioned the thousand meetings that we did in year one. We almost doubled our ESG and impact assets under supervision, which are at almost 140 billion now. That's really been a really robust area of our work is just how do we put this at the forefront of our work with clients? The second way we deliver on that commitment is really through how we manage our firm, how we manage our business. So this is about managing our risk and managing impact. We talked about our carbon neutrality commitment. I mean, we've reduced single-use plastics by 80%, paper by 70% over the past couple of years. We've been super aggressive with 
how we can really manage our own footprint really proactively. And we just upped our commitment this year. So we actually have committed to be net zero across our operations and supply chain by 2030 and made a commitment to align with the net zero transition pathway by 2050 for our financing activities as well. So kind of continuing to push on progress. And this is not just about climate. Obviously, you and I spend a lot of time in the climate environmental area, but a lot of our focus on managing our firm is very much equally on inclusivity and diversity of our workforce, looking at our supply chain. We have commitments to double our spend with diverse vendors, and so there's there's a lot of areas that cut across both climate and inclusive growth. And then the third is really, and this is sometimes where the work is hardest, but it's really how do we identify and address gaps? So both as a corporate managing our own operations footprint workforce and as an advisor to clients kind of day to day, hearing their feedback, what are the things that are really bubbling up of sort of problems or challenges or gaps in the market that we want to kind of roll up our sleeves and say, okay, we actually think we may not be able to address this in our core business. We may not be able to address it within the four walls of Goldman Sachs, but how do we actually kind of bring in others that have complementary expertise to be able to address kind of those issues or gaps that we identify? And a couple of examples I'll give you. One is we talked a lot about emerging markets earlier. The other one I'll give you is, and what an important part emerging markets is ultimately going to play in sort of delivering on global climate goals. The second I would point you to is is climate data. I mean, this is something that you just mentioned, John, this anecdote of you have a lot of, you talk to corporates who have net zero commitments and it's hard to know how they're going to deliver on it. And honestly, their data plays a really big piece of that and availability of information and accessibility of information, comparability. We right now do not have required climate-related corporate disclosure in the U.S. So I think there is a level of just data, which is such an important, when you're talking about investing, there's nothing more critical than that. So that's an area that we've identified where, quite honestly, we just don't have the data today that we need on climate. We have a lot of data, but it isn't always as easily accessible. It isn't always as comparable. And so that's an area that we're working really hard on with several partners One of the organizations that we're a founding member of is called Open Source Climate. If you haven't seen them, John, I would check them out. But they've brought together a lot of really important, thoughtful players who are very deep within the climate data and ESG data space. And the idea is really to just build an open source sort of data commons for climate data and analytics. So that's something that we're really excited about. So that's really the approach. It's kind of starts with what do we do in our business? then extends to how do we manage this across the firm? And then third is, how do we really advance this more globally, kind of in the broader ecosystem? I'm definitely going to check out open source climate because the issue of data is a critical issue. When a corporate decides, okay, let's try to tackle scope three, the biggest challenge they have is gathering the data and being able to track and monitor the data The journey at Goldman Sachs has obviously been very fascinating, and you've mentioned a couple things about the future. You've mentioned this data initiative. You've mentioned this joint venture with Bloomberg in Asia. Tell us a little more about the future of sustainable finance at Goldman Sachs. What do you see as as kind of the big things it'll take? What will we be talking about three years from now when we're talking about sustainable finance at Goldman Sachs? Gosh, this is so hard, John, because it's incredible the amount of acceleration that we've seen in the past couple of years, just to reflect on some of the things we talked about today. I mean, 
global levels of sustainable debt issuance, you know, in 2020, which was a record kind of from the following prior years on an annual basis. This year, we've already seen about 30% of that in one queue. So kind of on track to have, again, record levels. And we've seen this on the equity side as well. So I think it's kind of incredible to see the doubling down of the private sector. And you just wonder, under the Biden administration, with such a sort of all of government approach, what then is, is going to happen kind of even further. I would say, look, at Goldman Sachs, I think the things that we sort of aspire to are that there's a lot less differentiation actually between sustainable finance and finance. And you could probably hear it in some of the examples, but a lot of the work that we're doing with clients is sort of this acknowledgement that there's a cost of capital kind of relevance here. There's investor diversification. I mean, these are kind of mainstream terms. Data is kind of one of the most important things. These are the sort of the thematic issues that arise broadly in investing or finance broadly. And so I think actually this, the future hopefully will be kind of more and more integration where this isn't really a niche thing, right? And you don't need, you know, a degree to be able to talk about it and you don't need to understand the different acronyms, but you just kind of can can do your work as a CFO, as a treasurer. And so I think that's probably one. And the other thing I'll say on this front is that there are just no shortage of individuals outside the firm, inside the firm who email myself and our team of like, how can I get involved in this space? How can I work in sustainability? And I love responding and saying kind of, I look up what division they sit in or kind of who they work. And I'll just say, did you know that within your sector, you underwrote these three transactions or you advised this client on who put ESG considerations at the forefront of their IPO? So that's actually a really exciting place to say, well, actually, this is getting so embedded within the organization. So that's the first. The second is, I think we will continue to try to take every opportunity we can to innovate in this space. Innovation plays a huge role. A lot of the naughty problems we talked about today, you know, dollar capital, that's going to be mass amounts of capital that are going to be required, you know, lack of comparability, consistency in data. I mean, a lot of these things are just going to require kind of rolling up sleeves and hard grit and putting your heads together with really kind of smart, thoughtful people who have experience in trying to innovate together. One of the examples I'll give you of something we announced a couple of weeks ago alongside Apple and Conservation International is the launch of a Restore Fund. And this was a really, really interesting opportunity that we had to work closely with Apple and Conservation International to structure a fund for Apple that allows them to deliver on their net zero goals to offset unavoidable emissions and their carbon footprint by investing directly in climate smart forestry projects that have both financial return and carbon reduction component. The traditional practice would be you decarbonize as much as you can through your core operations, and then you purchase carbon offsets for the remainder. And so this is a really innovative structure, and we've gotten a lot of interest from clients and other stakeholders. And I think, you know, things like that are really the opportunity for us, because those are the things that I think are going to have really, really significant impact in the years to come. Wow. That's a very exciting view of the future. And I think the of all the things you referenced, the commitment to innovation is really key because who knows where this is going to go. It's interesting to hear that essentially you're you're now at the cool kids table in the Goldman Sachs <laughs> virtual lunchroom, you know, which is great. And I'm hearing this at more and more companies in pharma talking to a sustainability 
manager at a leading pharmaceutical company who was shocked at the amount of interest that they receive from people throughout their entire company to participate in what it is they're doing. I think that's such a huge driver, right? Because people want to be part of something that's bigger than them. They want to be a part of the solution. And you're obviously making that opportunity for possible for people at Goldman Sachs. So thank you for this great review of kind of your take on sustainability and sustainable finance and the role of sustainability and sustainable finance at Goldman Sachs. And now we get to talk about the thing I'm most interested in, Kara. Let's talk about you. Let's get to know Kara. I'm pretty sure you're a career Goldman Sachs person. I am. Tell us about your career path at Goldman Sachs and kind of what's the road been like to becoming the head of climate strategy at one of the most influential financial institutions in the world? Thanks, John. I am. I'm a lifer. It's been an incredible opportunity that I've been fortunate to have over the course of my career. So I spent my entire career at the firm, really at this intersection of stakeholder engagement and sustainability. So that's really how I I come at a lot of this work. I started at the firm in our investment banking division, helping to advise clients who are facing hostile M&A and shareholder activism, which taught me a lot about stakeholder relationships. I then moved to the corporate side of the house and worked collaboratively for many years with the firm's investors on our sustainability practices and also led our sustainability reporting during that time. It was really interesting because when I came into that seat, a lot of the investors that I would spend time with were socially responsible investors, you know, smaller investors. By the time I left, I mean, it was BlackRock. It was all of our largest State Street. I mean, it was all of our largest investors who wanted to talk about sustainability and talk about how we were managing climate risk and thinking about human capital. And so it was really sort of an amazing progression that I got to see during my time in that seat. And then when David Solomon, our CEO, decided that he really wanted to put a stake in the ground and put sustainable finance, make this the kind of commercial opportunity and imperative that we talked about, I had the really fortunate opportunity to come over and help build that business. So I was COO of the Sustainable Finance Group and worked really hard. It was a really busy, intense time, effectively launching a cross-divisional effort on this, working closely with our businesses. I mean, my job was really, how do you operationalize this day-to-day within an organization? How do you make sure that it's not a small group of individuals within the executive office that have this expertise because the expertise is actually so broad. There were so many existing pockets of, of climate and inclusive growth expertise. So how do you really build kind of a broad cross-divisional effort and operationalize it? And now I'm in the, the position to have the opportunity to, to bring all those threads together on climate and to really try to, so much of what I have to do is, is, is really try to keep my eyes set on the horizon and really look at those opportunities to innovate and really drive the firm forward. Well, that's exciting. And the move to global head of climate strategy is fairly recent. I think it's maybe just a couple of months, right? So yes. congratulations on your, you. on your promotion. Obviously, extremely well-deserved. So tell us why you're so passionate about, about this space. So I think a lot of it comes from just sort of the magnitude of the challenge that we're dealing with. 
I'm part of the cohort of Millennium Fellows. It's called the Millennium Leadership Program at the Atlantic Council. And it's great because I get to spend time with people who don't work at Goldman Sachs and don't work in finance, right? But but are very focused. And not everyone works in sustainability either. But it's so great to kind of have these diverse perspectives and debate kind of the big leadership challenges that we're facing day to day. And one of the things that has just been so clear in those discussions is when we do our work on leadership challenges, I mean, climate is just such a meta-adaptive challenge where there's no easy solve. And so actually so much of how do we get to net zero when we don't have technologies in place that are required that are commercially viable today, right? So I think so much of what is exciting and motivating and makes me passionate about this space is it's like really it's actually really hard Um, and you can make a lot of progress, but like you still, you can launch, you know, have a great announcement or you can, you can be really excited because you just helped a client launch a green bond offering and a lot of hard work. And it is, it's great. It's exciting. But then you look at kind of just the magnitude of how much more there is to go. And so I think there's just something about that that makes you so, that's kind of so exciting. And look, I think the other thing, that I'll say about the challenge is I think we have a lot of work to do to make it more accessible on an individual basis. You and I talked today a lot about sort of what the private sector can do. Obviously, that's most germane to my experience. But one of the things I think about a lot, and this it helps that I have three kids under six, that one of the things I think about a lot is like, it's not when I talk about my work, you know, I can't say emissions. Like I can't say even climate change, you know, they're kind of like, what? So there's actually just, I think, a discipline that's going to be so important because the kind of role of individual in all this, when you think about meta, the meta challenge of climate is actually so important. So teaching my kids simple things like turn off your lights, stop, make sure the water stops running, like all those little things, those habits. I think that's actually one of the the really important parts of the challenge too. So I think that level of complexity and just magnitude is what makes me so passionate about it day to day. Yeah, well, being driven by something that's complex, difficult, meaningful, important, those are great drivers. And frankly, I, I found what you just said really inspiring. So thank you for that. So you referenced the challenge of accomplishing the emissions reduction task ahead of us. What about your, your personal challenges? What's been the, the greatest career challenge that you've had in, in your time at Goldman Sachs? So I think for me, what has been the biggest challenges is actually the fact that, I mean, I've had just an incredible set of opportunities at the firm that's coincided with becoming a mother and really navigating motherhood alongside my career. And I mentioned I have Joseph, who's five and a half, Anna's three and a half, and Anthony's one and a half, going through the kind of three maternity leaves in a very short amount of time, navigating these kind of new opportunities, which you know the firm could not have been more supportive incredible network of kind of sponsors and mentors, but still just really hard. And I think because this has been just such an active space, you know, a thousand meetings last year, I think being able to really be the the present engaged mom that I want to be and also be the really present engaged professional I want to be, it's absolutely a challenge. But I would say what it has taught me, and I, I really wouldn't want it any other way, I think a lot of the strengths today actually that I have are very much a reflection of the experience that I've had of going through both together. And the one anecdote I often give was during my time in investor relations, 
I remember coming back from my maternity leave with my oldest. And I think my original strategy going in was, okay, this is going to be hard. I'll kind of take it easy. And I got tapped when I came back to, to take on our sustainability reporting. And I remember kind of saying, I don't know that I can do this. This is going to be too hard. And I had this conversation with my boss at, at the time, who's an, been an amazing sponsor for me, who really said, like, I know this is a challenge. I think you can do it. Like, I think it's, it's going to be exciting. I think this is going to be an opportunity for you. And I have to say, it was like actually something new to throw myself into a new challenge that actually made it so much easier than I thought it would be. And so I think there have been so many lessons of kind of that grit for me. And I love actually that my children will say to me like, mommy, what did you do at work today? You know, and they kind of will know, mommy, did you, I think the thing they like most about my job is that I take the train. <laughs> so that's often what they want to know. That's probably what, what for me has been the hardest, but really actually has been the most rewarding. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about challenges. Tell us about your accomplishment. What accomplishments are you most proud of? Look, I think honestly, just to have been a part of the really proactive sort of stance and strategy that Goldman Sachs has taken on sustainability since my time joining the firm. I'm not going to date myself many, many years ago. I think honestly, that's, that's what I kind of wake up most excited and proud about. And, you know, I do remember early days working on kind of our first first couple of years of sustainability reporting. And it's absolutely incredible to compare that to what we are able to highlight and talk about today and just the level of deep, sophisticated, innovative work that we're doing with clients on sustainable finance and climate. I, so I think just that having the opportunity to really kind of work at the forefront of these issues and do it at a place that has so prioritized it, that really believes with deep conviction that this is not just like a nice thing to do that you should be doing, but this is actually a really incredibly important driver of markets and economies in the years to come. Who's had the greatest influence on your career, Kara? So this is a this is an easy one. This is my mother for sure. So my mom, and this probably gives some context for the for the greatest career challenge. My mom did not have the opportunity to go to college and was not an active working professional. She was an incredible mom to three, but she really set her sights super high in terms of what she wanted me to kind of be able to accomplish. And it really wasn't about a thing. It was about figuring out what my passion was and figuring out what really got me motivated and then working super hard at it. And so she set, I think, sort of an incredible sort of focus for me. And I think I got, I get a lot of my kind of work ethic from her and my, my father too. But I think that that kind of belief that there's kind of bigger ambitions for me, I think has just been incredibly humbling. Like actually, whenever I kind of doubt myself and my ability to deliver on my goals, it's actually a really good, I remember a lot how she kind of encouraged me to just pick myself up. And if I feel like it's a hard problem, just ask questions and all those things. So she's absolutely been the biggest influence. Oh, that's fantastic. I've got to believe your mom, your dad, your entire family is extremely proud of you. Thank you for sharing that. So looking forward, what what do you hope to accomplish during your career at Goldman Sachs? I mean, I, I could 
say you're just getting started. I know it feels like you've been there for a long time, but what would you like your legacy to be at, at the company? Gosh, that's such a hard question. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is really just to continue to have kind of the confidence and kind of faith of others that I work with to really continue to, to have the reps to be at the forefront of this work. And I think getting back to your question on like kind of crystal ball, what does this look, what does sustainable finance look like at Goldman Sachs in like 10, 15 years? My hope is that leads to opportunities, you know, just kind of running businesses because this is going to become such a core important part of what we do that there won't be, you know, kind of the sustainability professionals and and other professionals that this really is deeply embedded. And I think we already have so many incredible, you know, examples of that. I will have to say you're, you're modest. And I don't know, I, I would say you got a chance at running the company someday. Thank you. Well, listen, Kara, you are awesome. This has been just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I really, you are so genuine, so smart. This has really been great. Thank you so much for joining me today on, on Smart Energy Voices. Thank you. It's been a great discussion. And thanks so much for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode with Kara, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of our next event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Kara in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.